Welcome to Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tiamanini. Here on Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. On today's episode, I speak with one of the most recognizable character actors working today. You might know his face from playing Steve the Pirate in Dodgeball, Hoban Wash Washburn in the Firefly Serenity TV and Movie franchise, and is the bad guy Mr. Nobody on one of my favorite current TV shows, DC's Doom Patrol. You've also probably heard his voice as King Candy in Wreck-It Ralph, K2SO in Rogue One, a Star Wars story, and as the Duke of Wesselton in Frozen, not to mention as the voice of Iago in the live-action Aladdin, and much, much more. Seriously, his CV is bonkers impressive. I'm personally partial to his runs as Alpha on Dollhouse and Van Wayne in the far-too-short-lived Powerless, but that's just me. Currently, Alan is starring in the world premiere of Michael Mitnick's play Mysterious Circumstances at the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles. The show, which opened in June, is running just through July 21st and has received fantastic reviews across the board. The show has a fairly complex setup that revolves around not only Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle in the 19th century, but also the murder of one of their biggest fans and scholars in 2004. But I'm going to let Alan explain all of the intricate details. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Alan Tudyk. Yeah, they do. Yes, yes, yes. They're, yeah, in, intertwining not. They're kind of intermeshed. That's a word, right? Sure, why not? I didn't just make that up. I didn't just put meshed with inter on it and make it a new thing. If you did, I'm let's sure call, it'll catch on anyway. It, yep. It feels it feels right. Um, so it's the story primarily at the heart of it of Richard Lonslin Green, a man who was killed in 2004. He was murdered or suicide or a suicide, uh, an unsolved mystery of his death uh, in London. He was a, a Sherlock Holmes aficionado and scholar of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote all the Sherlock Holmes stories, mm-hmm. and he was obsessed that he was a scholar you'd have to be obsessed to be sure. a scholar <laughs> yeah of one thing so uh he he was a the, the biggest fan you could be of the sherlock of sherlock holmes and he was killed uh so it it takes place in 2004 about three months before his death and then we have uh we go back to the 19th century with sir arthur conan doyle when he decides to quit sherlock holmes because conan doyle got thought it was trifles. He didn't, he didn't think it was serious enough writing and he quit writing uh, Sherlock Holmes, even though it was his most popular character. And it was at the height of Sherlock Holmes popularity. He just had his rival throw him off of, uh, of <laughs> the waterfall, Reichenbach Falls and uh, killed his, his most popular character. And so it goes back to that time. And then simultaneously, actually during those scenes, there's another part of the stage where, Sherlock Holmes and Watson are trying to figure out why all the cases have stopped. There's a mystery <laughs> afoot, and uh, something sinister is going on. Their their brains are uh, are starting to atrophy, and there are no cases. And so they're on the case of trying to figure out what's happened to their cases. They've become the case. And then it goes back to Richard Lanson Green until he dies, and then Sherlock Holmes is back on the case again. And he stumbles, so Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock and John Watson uh, stumble on the case of uh, Richard Lonson Green's death, and they're investigating who killed him. And 
until I described it the first time, I didn't realize how complex it was. Cause just <laughs> saying that's like, wow. So you've got a character that's fictional from the 19th century investigating a murder of someone in 2004. But we also have the author and it's, it's um, historical in that way. But Michael does a great job of intermeshing them all, all the storylines to where it just, it really flows one from the other and the styles between those times um, really play off one another. Well, there's some really sort of far school comedy moments who done it kind of type of moments within the play, but then some really beautiful, some you know, the, the character Richard Lanson green was a bit troubled and there's some uh, touching moments with him as well. And sad because he does he does end up dying and and yeah yeah and you play so both yeah exactly yeah, I play Holmes and uh, and Richard Lanson Green so that does have another element and everybody else in the play plays multiple roles so that's part of the <laughs> that's part of the fun too yeah I would I would imagine with that many different storylines that would have to be the case um, to have people doing right. a bunch of different things but um, as you kind of got into not only playing the character of Holmes, but also somebody who was, as you said, obsessed and an academic and a scholar about Holmes. Did you dive into some of those stories? Obviously, we all kind of know some of the tried and true ones, but did you read up on the Conan Doyle uh, stories to to prepare yourself at all? Yes. Uh, not as many as I would have liked to, because it was a pretty fast, from, from the moment of, oh, hey, I've got time to <laughs> do you want to do this play then to hey let's do it right now <laughs> there was a really quick uh a short short runway um uh, so i was able to read some i watched a lot of different Holmeses from the old bbc productions the, oh, there are so many different actors have played him uh, and these would have been the people that richard grew up watching sure. and falling in love with as well he first found books of course but that was fun to watch because the style of Sherlock Holmes is mimics a little bit of those old BBC productions where they would try to enter a locked door and the whole, as they pulled on the door, the entire wall would shake. <laughs> I can't get in. The door is locked. Yeah. Maybe try to go through the wall. It's made of softer stuff. Uh, yeah. But I didn't, I, what I did not get into was any of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's writing of his, like, obscure history, <laughs> obscure British history, which is something that he busied himself with and thought was very important that he had to do, uh, other than write Sherlock Holmes. And uh, actually, I'd like to take a look at that because we, we make fun of it <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Should know what you're making fun of. That seems uh, that seems worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, well, but what's so yeah. interesting about Sherlock Holmes, I think to this day, and the fact that they're still making movies uh, about Sherlock Holmes, even I think like right now, right? You know, so much of the entertainment community, as you well know, is about you know intellectual property and series and interconnected universes and stuff. And Sherlock Holmes was very much that, like you said, over a century ago. And now that you've been kind of playing him and and looking at some of those old, either the stories or the films or the TV shows, what do you think it is about that character and the stories specifically that keeps them relevant and interesting to people today? Oh, it's the classic whodunit, you know. And he does he does such a great job, Conan Doyle, of writing 
you know, you, it's going one direction and then it turns and goes around the other way and the plots are laid out in front of you, but you just don't see them. I mean, we're, as modern day audiences, we're, we're very accustomed to this. You know, one of the things, one of the reasons for his popularity is he was the first one to be writing that kind of, Edgar Allan Poe did a little bit, but this was their CSI. <laughs> he, was able to, he just knew more than everyone else. He was able to reference things in his own encyclopedia and always pull out uh, what what was actually going on in, in these seemingly impossible possible to solve cases. But also, Sherlock Holmes is not just a straight up good guy cop. He had the 7% solution that he talked about, which back in the 19th century was cocaine. <laughs> 7% cocaine. Yeah. Like he had a drug problem. He was messy. He couldn't pay his bills. He was a loner. Uh, he lived with Watson like they were roommates. For a while. <laughs> he wasn't a stable person. He was he was odd, and that's what gave him his edge. Uh, he was grumpy. He his demeanor rankled, as he says in the play. But when one visits a surgeon, you should expect to be cured, not caressed. Like no apologies for his attitude. So it's um, I think that's that's part of it as well. Yeah, that it's it's not just a straight up. Hey, this is the good guy. He's gonna catch the bad guys. He was a uh, he was edgy. Yeah, a bit of a demons. Yeah, a bit of a little bit of an anti-hero, which is something that we love even more now than we probably even did then. We'll take them where we can get them. Yeah, take any kind of hero at this point. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you mentioned that Richard Lancelin Green is was obsessed, and it, it's so interesting to me that so much of your career has been associated with fan favorite properties and characters from Dodgeball and Firefly and all the DC or Disney stuff that you've done in Rogue One. I wonder from for you, is there anything that you're obsessed with or, or what's your relationship with fandom from the fan side rather than the person that people are fans of? <laughs> oh, nothing to the level of... <laughs> Certainly, Richard Lanslin Green, who devoted his life to one thing and then like became like yeah. he built his life around it. Um, gosh, I don't know. I get I get obsessed with like I was obsessed with yardsticks for a long time. Like weird things. Like I'm into weird. I, like, <laughs> I was not expecting I that. A, I have an amazing yardstick collection, my friends. You should <laughs> you should see it. You'd have to come over to my house. They're up, they're hanging on my wall. I don't know. I don't even know how many I have hundreds. They cover one of my walls, but I like them because there's something that's lost to time. They used to be a thing that you, when you went to a shop, they'd go, here, have a yardstick. Yeah. Uh, take it home. It has the name of the store on it and their phone number and uh, like a calling card. But the yardstick became the thing in, in the home where you measured. It was, it was our, it was the solver of arguments in my house, you know, about all those measurement arguments that come up so much <laughs> when you're young. It, it was the final word on all measurement arguments. Uh, they, you could get smacked with it by your brother. Um, they were swords. They, they were just part of the household. And um, I came across one one time at a, some vintage place, and it was uh, from the 30s, and it was advertising liquid asbestos. And oh, Lord. Like, oh. oh, I was but a terrible thing. And it was made of this really nice wood. And so I bought it. And then I started finding all these old businesses that just don't even 
not only exist anymore, but make sense. Like um, funeral homes that are also furniture stores, a lot of those. And from what I've been able to discover, people who built coffins could also build furniture. So it all just took place. Hey, what do you want? A lazy boy? You want a chair to sit in or a box to lie in for the rest rest of time? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I have, I have a lot. And then phone numbers would be five JR seven and things that are just, it's just from a different time. And they're from such a very long time ago. And they think about the owners and all the people who've passed, where these things have passed, like all the history of each JR seven. So I, I could get into it. I get into that. I definitely get into it. So the history of things and uh yeah, that that would be mine it's not really a story to tell it's a story you put on it or that you investigate it like looking like i've got a great little old ruler from like a, a high school um some kid had in high school 12 inch ruler and it says board of education on it scrawled in ballpoint pen and board is written b-o-r-e-d you're the man that's what i'm talking about <laughs> stick it to the man that's right putting graffiti cool. on your own right. ruler yeah i love it yeah and like you know strong you know, tom people's names or uh oh just all these stores that don't exist anymore it's really nice wood and you cover a wall in it so anyway that, that that's my thing yeah, that's the last thing that I would have guessed, but I think that is possibly the best answer that I could have even fathomed uh, to that question. So that's that's wonderful. Um, so in, in talking about all these different things in, in your career, what has always impressed me about what you do is the sheer variety of the work that you do. And obviously, especially early in people's careers, actors take what work they can get, but you've been a steady fixture on both TV and in films and on stage, obviously, too, and then in voiceover stuff. What do you think it is about being able to go back and forth between all these obviously similar and related mediums, but they all have their own differences and idiosyncrasies? What is it about that that right. appeals so much to you other than being able to have a source of income? <laughs> yeah, uh, you don't get bored. You know, you because it can be, you know, a grind, I guess is maybe the better way. You know, if you're doing the same thing again and again and again, um, doing this play has been just incredible. Uh, just getting to work with other actors on a piece, putting on a show, that feeling of putting on a show, whenever you do a play, there is just inherent in it. You know, it's a stage, it's lights and an audience. And it, we've made it really fancy and we've done it, we do it very cleverly and there's all sorts of um entertaining ways to do it but ultimately it's actor stage audience turn on the lights and let's hear a story uh and you're telling it with your cast and the people backstage who are making it happen pulling the you know making the set work and you walk off stage and this person hands you a hat and your left hand this person takes your glasses off your head while someone's lining up the shoes in front of you so you can step up in the next one the coat goes on you grab a prop, walk on stage and you have a new voice, a new character and you're moving down the scene. You're still putting on the show and you have to do it in the timing of everything. Like that, that part of it is, is thrilling. And what I first fell in love with and great to be able to go back to. Yeah. Uh, when I started out, I did one, one character I did. Um, I remember from uh, the 1900s, uh, 1999, uh, 28 days, yeah. Uh, with Sandra Bullock, I played this um, very flamboyant person in um, he was in rehab, Gerhard Weinacht, and he's German and he's crazy and very emotional. And 
um, after that, I got offers to play these very flamboyant characters, like two or three. And I, I upset my agents because I was in my 20s. And they're like, hey, you're getting these opportunities. And I was like, I did that. I don't want to do that again. I did. That. I don't want to do that now. I've done it. I'm just going to become the guy who does that then. And I don't want to do that. So in the beginning, it was a choice to stay away from doing the same thing again. And then I think it's just continued on. And it's been really fortunate that I've been able to do voiceover as well. Um, that whole career didn't really open up as strongly as it did until Wreck-It Ralph and Disney. And then they've put me in every one of their movies, which is so cool. And then once Disney does that, other people who were casting voiceovers are like, hey, get that guy. So yeah. I, I, that's been so much fun. And I've learned so much. And that's a whole new world that's uh, been great. So I, just, I feel really, I feel really lucky, especially, you know, as far as longevity, you need this ability to receive them. The media landscape, as we now call it, shifting in such ways and the need for content, as we call it now, this need for this content that you can do television or movies. Movies are changed. What kinds of movies are made, the budget of movies that are made, how many movies are made. It's a lot smaller now. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel really fortunate. And you, you mentioned being fortunate enough to get back and do a show on stage, which if anybody who looks at your IMDb page realizes that it's probably pretty tough to find a, a, a hole in your schedule to be able to do that. Like you said, in, uh, right. you know, this kind of came not slapdash, but came together really quickly. Is there opportunity when you find a project that you really latch on to, whether it's on stage or something, do you have the ability to say, I'm going to build a schedule around this? Or do you have to kind of pick and choose just based off what fits in the holes uh, around everything you've already done? I'm sure that's when you have so many different things going on. It's it's probably as much a scheduling game as it is necessarily. This is something I want to do. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of both. I think for most of my career, it's just been fill in the holes. It's been, you know, I'm just an, I'm a character actor for hire. So you do a job, it's over at the, on this date. A lot of times I remember, <laughs> you know, because while you're doing a, a movie, you're auditioning for your next movie or yeah. your next TV show. And so you're constantly, you know, trying on different worlds and characters and just seeing casting your line, seeing what's out there and um, whatever comes together is, the actor's favorite saying of meant to be, you know, you have to, you have to carry that with you on the ready at all times uh, to apply to, you didn't get the part meant to be, it was meant to be, was it meant to be me? And it, and it plays itself out. But luck has been very, played, it has played itself out well in my life as far as the show you really wanted that you didn't get, you see it and go, oh, I didn't want to do that anyway. That's not something I would have been happy doing or, you know, movies that fall apart or whatever. Uh, or the project that comes along after is the one that you're like, oh, had I not been able to do that, I it would have changed the course of my life. This 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 has opened up so much more. Yeah, it's all just, or most of it's been fortunate. Lately, it's been I'm doing this thing and um, I'm going to do a TV show in November for Sci-Fi called Resident Alien, and so I know I've got four months there, and then this Star Wars series for their streaming channel that's yeah. um, a spinoff from Rogue One. I know that's going to be six months out there, so it's like 
that's I'm working up ahead up there. So I have this time to play and to do whatever. That's awesome. So I, I, I guess I'm kind of building around that in a way. I, I'd like to get to the point where I develop something, you know, that, that, that would be, I guess, the next step. Like I've created things before, but I have a project in mind. I have, I have one idea. I have one idea right now that's very interesting to me. And like ideas, I should probably do something about it because then <laughs> they become helpful. uninteresting. Yeah. yeah, they become uninteresting to you. And then you see the person who had the same idea and that it stayed interesting to them and they actually did it. And you watch it and go, oh, man, I that was my idea. <laughs> I had that idea. Somebody else is having your idea right now also. So get to it. But I, I think that's the next step is to develop a thing. Um, I, yeah, to, to follow through on, on some of my other um show ideas maybe content get some get some some (laughs) funny content i want to make yeah your face and your voice are not in nearly as many places as they should be so you've got to get them out there even more um (laughs) so um I got you got a couple more questions and I'll get you out here. As I said, looking through your resume, I'm a huge fan. And there's so many of these things that pop out, these names that pop out, these characters, whether it's Wash or uh, Steve the the Pirate or the Duke of Wesselton. But is there a character, maybe not one of the ones that comes to the forefront of fans' minds that you look right. back on more fondly or something that who knows everything, you know, this day and age is rebooted and remade, maybe something that you'd want to revisit again, or just think about fondly that, you know, maybe the fans isn't the first thing that comes to their mind. Hmm. We always talked about doing, um, and we've, we've talked about it publicly and as we've been closer and farther different points in time of making an, another Tucker and Dale versus evil. It was okay. a movie we made in Canada have you seen this movie? Uh, I believe it's on Hulu. I, I think I saw it uh, streaming on, on Hulu. Yeah, it was on. And it's on Netflix. For now, okay, sure. I, um, uh, so it's a horror comedy movie that uh, Tyler Labine and I are Tucker play Tucker and Dale, and uh, it's a comedy horror, which is a genre that I personally love, and it's a it's a it's one that's really hard to get right. You've got to find the right amount of cheese. You can't be too self-aware of that you're in a comedy. You still have to play it real, but crazy and wild things are happening around you. Um, ours, that's what Tucker and Dale versus evil is. And it's, uh, it's the, it's the trope of, uh, college kids going to a cabin in the woods and some crazed inbred hillbillies kill them and murder them and do all sorts of creepy things to them. It's, uh, too, quote unquote hillbillies going out just to go fishing in their cabin or their vacation home. And they, these college kids misunderstand and think that they have kidnapped their friend, Allison, and uh, they are out to kill us. And so we're just these good old boys for being attacked by all these damn college kids and kids are dying left and right. Like it's just, the stakes are very high. There's blood everywhere. I was covered in blood for days. It was hysterical. So I'd love to do that. And that's one that uh, there is a fandom for Tucker and Dale. Uh, and, and it is strong, but it is one that didn't get released really in the theaters. It, uh, it, it, like, it went to Sundance and got this great reception. And then the bottom fell out of the economy, the Bush economy. Yeah. <laughs> when it went south, it was like timed perfectly for all production companies to go, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to restructure and pull back and uh, 
so it it didn't really do anything and then went uh, onto Netflix, but has found a huge audience there like so many yeah. projects have. So that one. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine is the publicist for Katrina Bowden. So I knew that's why um, it had oh, been. Oh, he plays Allison. Yeah, exactly. So I knew yeah. that that was something that I'd that I'd come across and seen parts of before. But uh, anyway, so we'll get you out on, on this, kind of bringing it back to uh, mysterious circumstances here. This is a show, as we said, lots of moving parts, lots of different characters, lots of fun characters and voices and all this stuff going on. Uh, but if there is something that you hope that people come and see from this, I, I know from kind of reading some of the reviews that even though it is fun and it tells this really interesting, compelling mystery and multiple mysteries, that there's actually a lot of depth and heart to it as well. Is there is there something that you hope that people who come and see this uh, at the Geffen through the 21st uh, take away from it and, and maybe see some sort of mirror that's being held up to, to themselves and to the world that we live in today. Hmm. I think that the courage to imagine it's, it's believing in the mystery and the courage it takes to believe. <laughs> I think that that's, it, 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 it does so many things at once, but that, there's so much beauty and imagination and, and love there that uh, this man, Richard Lonson Green, who was devoted to uh, this imaginary character, that there's a, there's, there's a lot of love, a lot of love and imagination and it takes courage. It's worth it. It's definitely worth it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tiamanini. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt. And you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. We will have information for mysterious circumstances at the Geffen Playhouse and all of Alan Tudyk's social media accounts in the show notes and on BroadwayRadio.com. Tell Me More is produced and edited by me. Special thanks to the fantastic Alan Tudyk, Maria Candida, Anna Barnes, and the man without whom none of Broadway Radio is possible, James Marino. Thanks again for listening, and remember, when you have eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Also, always get a second scoop, and when you get the chance, ask people to tell you more. <laughs>